0: Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com slash support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode.
1: There used to be this assumption that museums were by and large neutral, and now workers from museums are saying we need to move beyond neutrality. We need to advocate for socially responsible positions we also need to make sure that board members people who have control of museums are also socially responsible.
0: Today we're revisiting our conversation on the corporate influence on culture and art museums with Dr. Mark Rechtanes, who is a university professor of German studies at Iowa State University. He's published numerous books and articles, including essays in New German Critique, Performance Research, and Museum and Society. And his most recent book is Museums Inside Out, Artist Collaborations and New Exhibition Ecologies, which explores what it means to be a museum in the 21st century and how museums are blurring the traditional boundaries between their galleries and public spaces.
1: I started actually looking at museums whenever I was growing up, visiting a lot of museums with my mother, my aunt took some trips to New York, took a trip to Europe and became interested in museums. Then it was somewhat of a circuitous route. When I was in graduate school, I was studying literature, publishing and media. I was somewhat interested in artwork and art and also saw how some publishers were using art. And so initially my research was not focused on museums. It was dealing more with the publishing industry, but also had this ongoing interest in artwork. So continue to develop that, that interest. Mm.
0: So the description of Culture Incorporated starts off with the following. Photographer Annie Leibovitz collaborates with American Express on a portrait exhibition. Absolute Vodka engages artists for their advertisements. Philip Morris mounts an arts against hunger campaign in partnership with prominent museums. Is it art or PR? And where's the line that separates the artistic from the corporate? End quote. This is a really intriguing question that I hadn't really thought about before, because this form of PR feels much more discreet compared to other forms of more direct types of marketing through sponsored advertisements. So can you give us an introduction to how corporations have been infiltrating the art space? And has this always been the case, or is it a relatively new phenomenon?
1: Well, there's always been forms of patronage. So going back centuries, patrons have traditionally supported artists, paid for artists to develop artworks uh you know you can go back to the church sponsoring artwork but then in the course of really the late 19th and 20th century art was then supported by large philanthropic organizations support by mainly private individuals in the united states and somewhat in europe in the uk But sponsorship really didn't come in to its own, so to speak, until after World War II, I would say probably more so in the 1960s. And so you have all types of sponsorships early on. You have sports sponsorships, which everyone's familiar with. Then later on, art sponsorships, echo sponsorships, social sponsorships. But initially, most people were familiar with, more familiar with sports sponsorships. And there's been a trajectory of sponsorships, starting out with uh, tobacco companies. For example, Philip Morris changed their name later to Altria, but most people knew their cigarette brand as Philip Morris. So in the In the 70s, they were sponsoring lots of artwork, museum exhibitions, then later came Big Oil sponsoring artwork, then recently pharmaceutical companies and and banks also. So the question about why sponsor art and culture has to do partially with marketing It's a way to address audiences who companies wouldn't normally be able to access in a different context, so in a museum context or a cultural context. And frequently, this is called image transfer. In other words, the sponsor, corporate sponsor, wants to be able to uh, share the image of the institution of the museum, for example, that they're sponsoring, that they're supporting. As I mentioned with tobacco sponsorship, this has become more and more problematic. There's been a lot of protests beginning with big tobacco. So that, that was sort of the first phase. And then as I said, big oil was another phase. There've been a lot of protests. Within the last 10 years, for example, at the Tate Museum, against BP, after the Gulf oil spill, and then more recently, protests against pharmaceutical firms, uh, for example, OxyContin, the Sackler family supported a lot of museums. So there have been artists and activists protesting against sponsorship, at least since the 19. 19- 70s and 1980s. Mm.
0: So the impetus for a lot of these corporate sponsorships largely have to do with their abilities to associate their brand image with for example the art institutions and it might be a way for them to improve their their publicity and their reputation among the general public. I'm also wondering if There are ways that they're able to influence, for example, what's actually curated within museums to shift the dialogues and the narratives and the general takeaways that people get from experiencing these exhibitions.
1: Sometimes they have influence, I've found in general, uh, with art museums. Usually the museum will come to the sponsor with a concept or an idea and then the sponsor will see how it how well it fits either with their marketing mix or with their overall vision for their company there there's sort of a negotiation that goes on one of the i think one of the key questions is are the values of the sponsor or patron aligned with the principles of the sponsored organization so whether that's a museum a nonprofit or a social institution, educational institution. And as I say, that's, that's a negotiation. So both sides are trying to determine, there, there's an exchange, there's a financial exchange, but there's also an, an exchange of cultural capital, so to speak, that goes on, that, that they're both trying to determine what they get out of that exchange, so to speak. And in many cases, Corporations are using it to reaffirm their status in a local community. So some sponsors are very interested in a local impact. Is it going to have an impact on people in the community who will have a favorable view of the sponsor? Other sponsors are looking more for a national impact. Now, whether that affects work of art. I think in many cases artists, artists are increasingly concerned about the context in which their work is displayed and exhibited and also the values of the museum and the values of the sponsor and that has become more and more critical. Last year there was a a case at the Whitney during the Whitney Biennial where several artists withdrew their work from the show when it was apparent that one of the Whitney board members, not a corporate sponsor, but actually the, a board member of the Whitney Museum itself, was a CEO of a company that sold tear gas that we, was used against protesters in a number of instances across the United States. So, you know, one thing that artists and artists play a pivotal role here, uh, they look at not only the corporate sponsor, but they also look at the institution of the museum itself. And are those values being implemented and practiced by the sponsor, but also are the values being implemented by the museum? So the the corporate sponsor may claim to be socially responsible, for example, environmentally responsible. I mentioned the case of the Tate Museum in London and, and BP. And so after the Gulf oil spill, protesters, activists were saying, no, this doesn't really reflect corporate responsibility. And so what is the museum doing? They also question the museum? Are they supporting the values that they advocate? And this has become a very big issue for many museums.
0: Mm. So overall, you provide a nuanced view of the privatization of cultural funding. What are some of the positives of this shift potentially? And then, of course, what are the negatives?
1: I think in terms of funding, one has to keep in mind that most institutions today have to rely on multiple sources of funding. So they may receive government funding, foundation funding, corporate sponsor funding. They also, in the case of museums, are receiving revenue from ticket sales, from bookshops, restaurants. So they're not dependent on just one source of funding, but the uh, corporate funding because many companies also link it to advertising may have a bigger impact than other sources of funding. So for the museum in particular, they may get funding, ongoing funding from government, local government, federal government, and or foundations, other private sources, endowments. That covers their ongoing costs, but for an exhibition, then they will frequently turn to sponsors. So that provides them with an additional source of funding. So that can be a positive, that can be a positive aspect of support, whether it's from a corporation or from another source. For artists, there are also some time, some aspects when some artists will receive funding from corporate sources to fund residencies, art in residence programs, direct support for a project that artists are working on. So getting that type of support can can help them on a particular project. On the other hand, I find many, many artists are wary about aligning themselves too closely with corporate interests for all of the reasons that I just mentioned, because the corporate values, a corporate mission, corporate goals may shift so that at one point, a corporation uh, may seem to be more aligned with an institution like an art museum or a particular artist may have received support, but, you know, two or three years later that could change. So, I find most artists are, are somewhat reluctant to become too dependent on any one funding source or any one patron, so to speak. Museums, probably also the same, although there are certainly muse- some museums that have embraced uh, more corporate funding than others. The other thing to keep in mind is that many museums particularly and i'm talking about large global museums now have almost become corporate entities in, in and of themselves so they're essentially operating like corporations the museum has accepted a corporate business model and they're they're operating under similar logics as corporations so that that really makes things somewhat more complicated and complex. The Guggenheim Museum is a good example of that, and it's frequently cited as a corporate clone or a global museum that's franchised itself and generated some revenue by doing that.
0: All of this discussion about the ethics of corporate funding makes me think about How I don't believe ethical purity is possible inside of an extractive and exploitative system, because when the economic system that we have currently already undervalues ecological resources, human labor and so forth, it's going to result in corporations that took advantage of that skewed value most likely having the most financial capital. So when we're talking about our need to decentralize wealth, economic resources and power, we also inevitably have to be taking those away from the corporations that traditionally benefited from the system because we have to be we have to have those corporations give up some of their wealth. But I guess it would also only lead to really positive outcomes if they gave up their wealth without any contingencies or without strings attached and using these opportunities as an exchange for their ability to better their public images.
1: Yes, that's right. It's a very complex system. And as you said, you can't really isolate one part or one institution or one actor, be it an artist, an individual or a museum, or a corporation, or a government. They're all part of of a complex system. So for example, Europe uh, had, by and large, a government support for the arts that changed in the 1980s and 1990s quite a bit. More and more neoliberal privatization of arts funding. So if you, ha- if you say, well, we're not going to have any corporate funding or we're just going to have government funding, then you can also have a lot of influence on the arts in government funding because then you have political influence. And that was apparent in the United States during the so-called culture wars. That Again, coming back to tobacco, there was one artist named Hans Hacke who uh, did a number of provocative artworks dealing with government impact on artwork. So it is very difficult to isolate one actor, one agent in the system from the other because they're all interconnected with each other. So without a comprehensive systemic change, it's very difficult to to change other components in the system and. Recently, with Black Lives Matter and social justice activism and protests, I think this has come more and more to the forefront in society, that there, there is more and more of a realization that there needs to be systemic change, institutional change. and This is what protesters and activists have, have said with respect to art museums, That art museums cannot just support socially engaged, socially progressive artists and art exhibitions without making changes in their own institutional structure, so that if they don't have more equity in their boards, in how they hire, in the wages that they pay to Uh, their employees, and fees that are paid to artists, then these exhibitions are just superficial because they don't result in any uh, substantive systemic change. Mm. This gets back to your whole question about how do you change or can you really change one part of the system without changing other parts of the system because they are so interdependent on each other. And certainly in the case of the art world, that's a particularly uh, important issue. I'll I'll give you one statistic. In 2019, the global art market was valued at over 64 billion U.S. dollars, with the U.S., the U.K., and China accounting for 82 percent of global sales. So when you consider that, you see that museums are really also tied into a global art market, particularly contemporary art museums, because investors in the art market are trying to have their work shown in art museums, so it will increase the value of their work. And there are also, a financial industry is also very interested in art as an investment so i think it underscores this whole issue of institutional dependencies and in institutional connections that it's very difficult to separate one from from the other and many many protests today many activists are pointing to to these connections particularly in the united states as i mentioned between museum boards that are very dependent on donors who are art collectors themselves, and that's why they're on museum boards, but they're also donating large amounts of money to museums. But the artists and activists are questioning the values of museum boards and and donors and the museums themselves. And I'll also add that uh, many of the staff members who work for museums are questioning their own museums. There used to be this assumption that museums were by and large neutral, and now workers from museums are saying we need to move beyond neutrality. We need to advocate for socially responsible positions. We also need to make sure that board members, people who have control of museums, are also socially responsible.
0: On a related note, in the last few years, there's been more intentional effort by museums in the U.S., across Europe and Australia to decolonize their institutions, as many museums have roots in colonialism, often with troubling histories of how their artifacts and artworks were acquired. I'm not sure if you had had a chance to specifically look at this, but what comes to mind for you when this topic is raised?
1: That's a big topic and a very important one, and it covers quite a few areas, so decolonizing museums, something artists are very interested in, and museums have been uh, trying to make some headway with, with greater or lesser success, in my opinion, in many instances with less success. In terms of decolonizing museums, what it means operates or plays out on a number of different levels it can mean decolonizing collections so some museums are looking to achieve greater representation of work by artists of color in their collections because in the past the collections have largely been European white artists male artists So part of this process has been to try to diversify the collection. Another aspect, particularly with ethnographic museums, is to attempt to partner with communities of color and also to a certain extent with indigenous communities As I said, with ethnographic museums, many of them have collections in Europe and to a certain extent in the United States, but particularly in Europe, of indigenous culture. So another aspect is uh, repatriation or restitution of collections to the countries where these works were taken or looted over the course of centuries. In France, there was a big study, a report that came out uh, called the SAR Savoy report and uh, commissioned by Macron, the President of France. So France had this intention of trying to return repatriate a lot of artworks and there's been criticism because that hasn't happened yet. So restitution is a huge issue for many museums. Another aspect of decolonizing museum is museum staffing, more diverse and inclusive staffing and curatorial staff who will bring in a more diverse and textured program with different artists being represented. So that's another goal, but achieving all of these changes also comes back to issues that we were talking about before uh, related to systemic change in museums, and this past summer, uh, in the light of many demonstrations, there's been quite a few discussions within museum circles about how best to achieve this uh, transformational change in decolonizing museums or cultural institutions. My own view is that these substantive changes will not occur until there's changes in many institutions in governance and in funding. That comes back to what we were talking about earlier about sponsorships. If you don't change the governance, who is running the museum? Who has the power to make decisions about how the museum is going to be run on a day-to-day basis? Who, who is chosen as the museum director? Who's on the board? What influence do boards have? And where do they get their funding from? And unless you change those things, my view is that institutional change will be limited because you're still going to be tied to funding, for example, if a museum is dependent upon wealthy board members, then how do you replace, if you say, okay, we don't want these wealthy board members anymore. They have too much influence. Well, where do you pick up the funding if they're not there? Uh, I will just add, there's also been a suggestion that many US museums should have more artists on their boards, or there are some museums in Germany that are almost completely governed by artists. They're art museums for artists and so they're also governed by artists. But then if your government funding is cut or other funding sources are cut, where do you pick up that, that slack? So it's a, it's a difficult question.
0: We know that there is, for example, the media industrial complex, the medical industrial complex, military industrial complex, nonprofit industrial complex that really highlight the role of power and money in shaping these fields. So I almost wonder if there's such a thing as maybe the museum industrial complex, or I don't know what you would call that.
1: Uh, you might call it the art <laughs> art industrial complex or yeah, museum industrial complex. That is certainly the case. Uh, The statistic that I mentioned before about the size of the the global art market and investment in the art art market really is uh, a part of that. There are quite a few people who invest in artwork without any intention of ever showing it in a public museum. There are also art investment funds that art and culture is seen as a capital investment, a venture capital. There are also wealth management funds that will provide consultancies for private investors so that they can receive advice on managing their collection. Uh, So uh, very large investment funds have seen this as a a market that they can get involved in and uh, that that does have an impact on museums not in not only in terms of board members who are ve- very wealthy who are art investors they they may like art they may love art but they are also seeing art as an investment and so they want to be closely aligned with institutions that are involved in art. And there are these huge art fairs like Art Art Basel uh, in Basel, Switzerland, which is our, also an art fair in Miami. So these art fairs have also become global events. It's almost like the annual meetings in Davos of uh, world leaders. These uh, art fairs become industrial corporate centers for art investment along the lines that you were asking about.
0: Well, your latest book, Museums Inside Out, looks at how artist museum collaborations are reshaping what it means to be a museum in the 21st century. Specifically, you investigate how museums are blurring the boundaries between their gallery walls and public spaces. When most people think of museums these days, we likely think of these physical galleries and buildings that house certain pieces of artwork depending on the theme. So what has been changing about this and how do you think blurring this line between museums and public spaces will influence the cultural institutions' impacts on our society?
1: Yes. Well, again, it's a a multifaceted question. Uh, I found it to be a very interesting one, observing how museums were involved more and more in collaborations with artists playing a pivotal role not only physically outside of museums, but also conceptually moving outside of, of museums, thinking about what museums do differently in the 21st century. More and more museum directors have say that, that an art museum is not necessarily a place, but it's also an idea. So if you start from the point of departure, open mind of, A museum uh, can be anything. It can be anywhere. It can be a pop-up museum that maybe lasts just for a couple of weeks or a couple of months with an exhibition uh, run by artists and curators and loosely affiliated with a museum. Or it can be a more well-established museum that works with uh, communities. And I think this is a big aspect uh driving museums moving out of their physical spaces they've realized that they need to be more engaged in communities my own view is they're probably not engaged enough they're still uh setting the agenda but i i think there's definitely been more of a shift towards community-based projects i can give you some examples of uh Museums moving out in Frankfurt, for example, the Schirn uh, Museum, the Schirn Kunsthalle. It's an art space and museum. Uh, supported a group of artists from Brazil. It was called Street Art Brazil, and the museum commissioned them to go throughout the city of Frankfurt and paint murals in different places. One was at a police station. Uh, Some were on bridges. Uh, Some were in other public spaces, uh, public squares. And so for a period of two or three weeks, they created these murals. And then they invited the public to capture pictures of themselves on Instagram and then post them and then send them back to the museum. And then the museum in the rotunda of the museum had... A video mosaic where they would change all the pictures that people had taken from this street art Brazil project in Frankfurt and sort of moving the outside art space to the inside, but also moving the inside art space to the outside. So that, you know, that's just one example of this movement in and out of art spaces but i think that really the big thing that's changing is involvement in communities and art museums and all museums trying to be more community based more and in, more involved in communities but i think to do that they have to give communities a lot more power to actually develop and drive the projects rather than coming to the community and say we've we've got an idea, would you like to collaborate with us? And I think here artists play an important role.
0: Mm. Well, increasingly, a lot of people are talking about, you know, pressuring corporations to have more sustainable and ethical practices, and then also pressuring our politicians to do certain things that are positive for our society. Do you then feel that everyday people can have a meaningful impact by doing the same with the art institutions that we have around so that they can realize the goal of ideally collaborating more with communities and, of course, indigenous communities as well?
1: I think they can have an impact. I think that's been shown with some of the activist movements that have protested museum policies, but several things are going on. There are activist movements outside of uh, museums, and the Occupy movement in New York and other global uh, protest movements had a great impact internationally, more globally, on, on what's going on. So I think there are a lot of grassroots movements that can have an impact on museums. That's one component. The other component is, as I mentioned, within museums so that there are people who are in organizations who are progressive, people working for art museums who want to see museums move beyond neutrality, who have a great interest in promoting social justice in the environment. Uh, So they're working to try to change museums and cultural institutions internally. Meantime, there are groups working externally. And then you also have artists and and other groups that work with museums and and communities. So yeah, I, I do think that people can have an impact if they are organized and if they collaborate. Uh, and I think I saw that resonate last summer. Some of the movements that were demanding more social justice. But again, it it will take time to see whether that really results in transformational systemic change. But it, is it having some impact now? I think it 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 is.
0: What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow, or a book that's been really profound for you?
1: What I find very uplifting, uh, this is probably no surprise, is artwork. I find it to be very inspiring. Uh, For example, artwork of an artist called El Anatsui from Ghana, beautiful tapestries from found artworks. In terms of magazines or books, I like to read Preservation Magazine. I've always been interested in historic preservation and innovative architectural sites, and so I I keep up with that.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired?
1: Uh, I tell myself that I enjoy discovering something new every day. Again, I'm inspired by art and culture on a daily basis. I reflect on what I learned from them. I also gain a lot of inspiration from my family and friends.
0: What makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment?
1: In my professional life, I've worked a lot with students, and I'm really impressed with the very strong commitment among the current generation of students environmental issues and sustainability, not only in the U.S., but many other countries.
0: Well, we are coming to a close. Screen Dreamer, you can find Mark's work and books at the website works.bpress.com slash Mark underscore rectanis. And Mark, really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us here and sharing your expertise and your learning lessons. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: My final words of wisdom would be engage art and culture wherever you find them as sources of inspiration, learn new languages as a portal to cultures and to new ways of experiencing the world and interacting with people outside of your own community and culture, support social justice, and collaborate with others who share your vision.
0: Green Dreamer, we're coming full circle here. If our show has moved you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash Green Dreamer. Today's intermission song feature is Black Moss by Johanna Warren. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you in the next episode.